everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. Before we get into this episode, once again, a reminder about the incredible giveaway Blue Highway Fest is uh, giving to listeners of Mandolins and Beer. If you want to go see an incredible lineup of musicians uh, between October 11th and the 14th, they're giving away two-day and four-day passes to some lucky winners who will be drawn randomly. Got a bunch of people entered already, but they're giving away more tickets. Again, two-day and four-day passes. This lineup is nuts. Um, I mean, Sam Bush, Dan Tominsky, Tim O'Brien, um, Blue Highway, Larry Sparks, Ralph Stanley II. It's it's an incredible lineup. Tim Stafford, Thomas Utes, Dave Eggers. I mean, it's incredible. So all you have to do, shoot me an email at danielpatrickmusic at yahoo.com with tickets in the subject matter. There'll be a link below, too, that you can click. It'll take, to you, take you to my contact page where you can enter. I also have posts on social media. If you go under there and just reply tickets and follow along, you're eligible to be put in the drawing to win, and I'll be announcing the winners very, very soon. So thank you so much to Blue Highway Fest. Hey, everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, episode number 195, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc, where if you go to Acoustic Disc right now and enter your email, they send you a free treat of the week. That's a song, just to be clear. And they send it to you for free via the email. Acoustic Disc is the home of uh, David Grisman's incredible label. There's so much great stuff available on there. As a matter of fact, they should be probably releasing something here any day now. They put something out just about every month. And they also are home to David Grisman and Danny Barnes' Acoustic Encounters podcast. So head over to Acoustic Disc. How is everybody doing? Hope you all are doing well. Getting ready for a busy month here. Going to be at the Monroe Mandolin Camp. In a few weeks, and then IBMA, right around the corner. I'm going to be at IBMA. I'm so excited. We are actually uh, sponsoring a room, myself and Keith from the Picky Fingers podcast with the Hen House Prowlers, which was the room to be in last year. I'm excited for that. We'll also have a booth there again. So for IBMA, stop on by. I'll have some shirts available. Trying to have hats again, uh, but I've sold out of hats, and it just the back orders have been crazy. So it's just been easier to wait it out. I had a great chat with my guest this week, Jacob Sharp from the band Mipso. Mipso's great. I really, it was really fun talking to Jacob for for multiple reasons. I met him at the Green Mountain Fest, Green Mountain Bluegrass and Roots Fest, and it's so nice. And Mipso blew me away. We're so good live. It was fun, great songs, talented musicians. It was really, really a treat to talk to him. And uh, the way he approaches mandolin is really, really interesting as well. We talk about a YouTube video clip that was kind of a little bit of a viral thing and won some awards. There'll be links below for that. Another thing we talked about, though, is the state of the music industry. And it's it's pretty interesting to hear it from um, a guy like Jacob's perspective because the band Mipso, you know, they're on a, a label. They've had a lot of streams and um, you'll hear all about it. It's, it's really a really interesting conversation. So Jacob was great. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. One other thing I want to bring up to September, this whole year has been pretty crazy post-concussion, but um, I, I have people reach out about lessons every now and again. And in October, I actually have some room to take on maybe just a couple students uh, this year, October, November, and December. And so if anybody's interested in taking some mandolin lessons via the Zoom or Skype or however would be easiest, drop me a message. I've been working on a lot of really, really interesting things, and maybe some of those things would be interesting to you, too. And uh, so, yeah, reach out if you would be interested in that. Now, let's get into the sponsors real quick here. Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Peghead Nation features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses by Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. High-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tap, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Tone slabs. Get yourself a slab of tone. I love my tone slab pick. I use it all the time. I'm looking at it right now in the strings of my mandolin. They've got all the shapes and sizes that you've grown to love. 
uh, different thicknesses, different bevels. They can customize them. Frank and David are doing some incredible work. Head over to toneslabs.com now and get yourself a slab of tone. Also, if you want to work on changing the tone of that mandolin, why not with a new set of strings? Stringjoy has just put out mandolin strings, and I'll tell you what, they are something else. Uh, the coated ones, uh, I have never been a fan of coated strings, is the best coated strings that I've ever used, um, for sure. They don't feel coated in the weird chemically way. I guess I don't even know how to describe it because I really never liked them, but these have a completely different feeling and a completely different sound. They sound almost broken in. And if you want to find out for yourself what they sound like, just go to stringjoy.com. Use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout, and you are going to save 10% off your order. Thank you to Stringjoy. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player right there in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much to Pava and Ellis. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new used and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now, in their 51st year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. I recommend going there daily and checking out the new arrivals. All right, let's get into this episode with Jacob Sharp. Please be sure to follow along on Instagram and Facebook, Mandolins and Beer. All the song clips you're going to hear today are listed below. And uh, yeah, let's get into the episode. Cheers, everybody. How do you tell someone you're lonely when they're sitting by your side? All right, now it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Jacob Sharp. Jacob, how's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, thank you so much for doing it. You know, I wanted to reach out to you right around that time I saw that incredible video about how you got your mandolin. And I was like, I got to, yeah. you know, and then just, you know, how things get. And that video kind of came out, was it around COVID times? Let's think that was spring of 21, I guess, that that came out. So, yeah, we, we filmed it kind of on the backside of the intensity of the pandemic um, when things were starting to open up a little bit more. Yeah, that's a that's a great video. But before we get into all that, I want to make sure we get to a couple real important things. And the first thing is you guys have a brand new album that just came out called Book of Fools. And that just came out. Was it last week or the week before? Um, let's see, we this will be two weeks this Friday. So we're, uh, yeah, c- coming up, coming up quick on, on it being live for, for a little while. And it's a great album. I got to hear the live versions of some of the tunes at Green Mountain and you guys absolutely crushed that show, by the way. What a great set. <laughs> Thank you. That was so fun. We, we just, Green Mountain Bluegrass and Roots Fest, that's, uh, that kind of has become, it feels like an annual pilgrimage and like family reunion almost. So we were really thrilled that we were able to debut some of the new stuff there. It felt appropriate. Yeah, it was excellent, man. And um, it was really cool just to see how happy everybody was to see you guys because it had been a minute, I believe, since you were you weren't at the last one anyway. That's right. Yeah, we had to miss last year because um, of kind of a scheduling conflict. And so it felt great to be there. And then Emily and Andrew from Watch House and a couple other, Ifo Donovan, a couple other kind of old, dear old friends all overlapped that day. So backstage, we hopped out of the van and it was, it was hugs all around. And you are also getting ready next week. This is going to air actually um, on the 8th of September, but you guys are getting ready to head out next week on the tour for this album. That's right. Yeah, we have, you know, it's, it's interesting. We've, we've been, Mips has been a band um, full-time for 10 years. This, this fall kind of marks our 10-year anniversary. And we, until the pandemic, there was never a time where we weren't, where we were home for more than like three weeks at a time. We were always unpacking and packing the van right back up the next week. And this last year, we really were able to take space for the first time from the road and focus on the new record and also some solo projects. And it feels super exciting to have a full calendar rapidly approaching and also daunting. It's, it's funny how quickly you get out of the rhythm of it. Yeah. Now, when I see these month long tours, I'm like, whoa, that's insane. That's a crazy way to live. And it used to be just the assumption that that's how you live. So it, it's going to be really exciting to, 
to feel that rhythm again with the music and the band and also to get to return to some of our favorite cities across the country. It's interesting how much people remembered how much they loved home <laughs> after, after, especially musicians, you, you kind of forget like, oh man, it is kind of nice to be at my house for more than a week or two at a time. I mean, honestly, it's not that we had forgotten. We just had never known it. We, we spent, we graduated from school, the band started touring and it, it didn't stop until March, 2020. So it's been an interesting time. I think our, our band kind of operates like a family. We're closer to siblings than anything else. And we all have had to like support each other in weathering what it means to have, to have found stability and a desire for maybe a less, not that tour is chaos, but a less, um, a less in motion life and how is it that you still keep the band together and still keep the business together if if you're all realizing that you might have a more satisfying life with with more frequent longer chunks at home were you guys on the road during covid or were you guys preparing a tour when covid hit we were preparing a tour we had an album that was slated to come out um in like may of 2020 with That was going to be that was a rounder release that um album then was delayed we kind of had like a warm-up tour planned in march where we were going to debut some of the new songs and sounds and then we had a full routed nationwide tour in europe too coming afterwards and everything just got paused and so that album ended up coming out in october of 2020 with no no live shows uh, and then we did a follow-up release tour in 21. So let's get into how you got into mandolin. Now, there's that video. I'll post a link to the video in the description and on the website and stuff like that. But for those who haven't seen that video, it's it's one of the coolest ways anybody's ever gotten a mandolin that I can think of. <laughs> so if you want to maybe just give like a uh, an abridged version of that, and then I'll post a link so people could check it out because it's definitely worth watching the video as well. Yeah, sure. So the video, my younger brother is a filmmaker, and he and his filmmaking partner um, entered a well, filmed a video of me and my dad telling the story of how I won my first mandolin off a of fishing bet with my dad. Uh, and then that film ended up winning a film contest with the state of North Carolina, where they were kind of telling unique stories about kind of stories that could only happen somewhere like North Carolina, where uh, music is kind of as ingrained as it is in all of our lives. But for me, I was so I was interested in music from a young age, and in large part because my older brother, who was kind of my best buddy, was a great musician and also just a music aficionado. And like any younger brother, I was admiring and wanting a piece of that. And so I was trying to figure out how it is that I could both find bands that I was as passionate about as he was and also find music that I wanted to play. And he, at first I thought I wanted to play the guitar and I got a guitar and my older brother, I was really young and had, you know, it wasn't fully grown and it was a full size dreadnought and it was awkward to play. And my brother quickly, yanked it from me and, and got a lot better at it than I was. Um, and so the insecure middle child in me didn't love that. And I was like, I need to play something that that's, uh, that you don't see as often, something that's a little more unique. And around that time, I actually was at a string cheese incident concert and Michael Caine, um, who normally plays electric mandolin, there was one moment, it was in Asheville. And I think because of that, they kind of went acoustic for, for a moment. And, um, I thought I kind of never really seen a mandolin like that. Uh, I knew bluegrass music and had seen it around, but, um, it was the first time that I saw it in a large format and thought this is different and this is cool. And I was just hooked from, from then on. And so I started pestering my dad. I was like, dad, I really got to get a mandolin. And he, you know, he was like, well, great. You, you need to, save up some money and buy one. And that was a debate that was ongoing for a couple months leading up to our annual beach trip. And we always would go to Emerald Isle and we would have a day where the whole family would fish on the pier together. And 
me and my dad were talking some smack and my dad is an amazing father and a notoriously bad fisherman. <laughs> and, uh, towards the end of the day, I was like, dad, if you catch a fish on this last throw, you got to buy me a mandolin. He was like, he hadn't caught a fish all day and everyone else was catching fish. And he was like, yeah, no problem. And it was one of those pier rigs where you have two hooks on it. And I was like, and if you catch two at the same time, and you have to buy the case too. And he cast out and pulled in two fish. And um, uh, a week or two later, true to his word, I got a, a mandolin. It was a Fender. Man, I think I bought it from like a musician's friend, like from a catalog. It was an A, a Fender mandolin, an A shape. And it had um, it had like a tone and volume knob on it. You could plug it in. I thought it was so cool. And uh, <laughs> I started whipping that thing out anytime I could, trying to, trying to jam with people and Really, I wasn't too focused on learning like a traditional bluegrass style of mandolin early or, and kind of ever. That's never really been my path, though I love the music. I just wanted to write songs on it. And I think of the mandolin as such a great and unique vessel for crafting songs. Um, so I started writing, so learning chords and writing songs. And then the only person in my town I could get lessons with actually was a violin teacher who taught me to read music. And I was playing like all classical stuff, violin pieces uh, so I, that was kind of my entry was learning to read music on the mandolin and, and playing classical stuff and then I got introduced to Doc Watson and Nickel Creek and eventually kind of found my my own way back to more maybe typical North Carolina acoustic and folk music yeah I would imagine Doc Watson when you live in North Carolina has to be one of the uh, artists that you kind of hear if you're looking for that style of music huh it was Doc was the um this is a little bit before this, before I got my man on the dock was the, the second concert I ever bought a ticket for on my own was Doc Watson in my hometown. Oh, no way. Really? Yeah, it was him and David Holt. They, um, I guess this is, we've gotten to know David in the time since I never met Doc, but got to see him a couple times. And two of the times it was he and David Holt playing together. And yeah, he played, um, the municipal auditorium in, in my hometown. I guess I was in fifth grade and, Bought a ticket, got got the ticket signed afterwards by Doc. I still actually have it. We just moved out of my childhood home, and I found this stack of old concert tickets. And there's a there was that that one with Doc's signature on it. Wow, that's so cool. I, you're I I look back now and feel lucky. My my family was not from that part of North Carolina, and, and no one played acoustic music. But music was all around, and the Merle Fest is like. 25 miles away from the town I grew up in. So it's, it kind of just percolates both uh, in the public and private sectors. So you, you're seeing, you're seeing and hearing stuff in a casual way that I, I don't take for granted. I think it, it was, there's, there's a reason that it was on my mind as something that was cool and not obscure. It was really great to see too, this, um, all the Doc Watson tributes for his hundredth birthday this year seemed to be overwhelmingly successful, like some really big venues. I mean, I guess it probably doesn't hurt when Billy Strings is headlining one of them. And, you know. That's true. Yeah. Billy, Billy lends, lends some help with that, but it's, it's true. I mean, Doc, I don't know, Doc's such a great, uh, I think for so many younger people who, who were coming in at the time where like Chris Steely or Tim O'Brien were kind of the people who were maybe most prominent active players and so you're listening to Bill Monroe you're listening to other older other players Doc is such a great bridge I think between the two zones and also someone who really highlighted the type of tune that I think if you're interested in songwriters are, are the right type of traditional tunes to study from a songwriting perspective too and you guys that's one of the things I love about your albums is the um they are definitely songwriter based I love songs that mm. have chord movement I mean, I, I would guess, it, is is Louise, is that your biggest kind of hit song? I mean, it seems to be the one that's got the most plays and you have the bumper sticker. Wondering if it could take us very far. And I said, everything about it takes a little luck. The gears rumble and the left door stuck. It doesn't come with any guarantee. Yeah, Louis, I guess, well, people change. That's um, the biggest like streaming song for us. But I think that Louise is probably the like live favorite. 
Yeah, but people change that one. Someone told me recently that one's at like 120 million streams. <laughs> oh my gosh! So that amazing. one's pretty. That 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 one's at at a scale that's kind of hard to wrap your finger around. So you must have made like tens of dollars from that song from the streaming, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all got a we all got to buy a pack of strings. <laughs> oh, what a what a what a sad state of affairs this has become for the streaming. I mean, I guess it's great that that many people listen to it and you get to tour and people come to see you, but it's still It's interesting that I think the the when you look at the history of music consumption, whatever the predominant medium is of an era they all rip off the artist right and it's always the people who on the industry side all the suits make money the whole time it's it's the artist and the writer who doesn't and it whether that was radio or or now streaming like there's always been a version of that and on the one hand streaming like the honest thing for from our perspective is that streaming obviously we don't make as much money as we would have if that was any other medium um, and definitely people are buying less too when you separate it just from the public consumption. But we also, there's no way that a radio hit in our type of music would have ever been played 120 million times. So you do get a wider listening demographic and group, but it's harder to know if what it means. Like, you know, we, we get a lot of data on it and it's hard to know if like when this is playing at, some yoga studio in Bali. Like do any of those people actually know that interact enough to know that this is Mipsa who's from North Carolina and they go on tour and you can see them. I don't know. Maybe it's just in the background of, of your life. Um, but there's something cool about that. I like music being just percolating, whether or not you're actively engaged. And, and also we, we make fun of the money side, but when you're at that scale, when you're over a hundred million, it, the money is is legit, and it has provided some new opportunities for the band as far as like upping our touring game. And when that money started to roll in, is when we invested in ear near rig, and I don't think that would have been possible otherwise. So there's there's two sides of the coin, and I wish it was different, but also there's a element of it that we can still be grateful for. It's interesting to see, like you know, I always liken it to um, John Hartford. Like John Hartford made that gentle on my mind money, which made it he got to do whatever he wanted for the rest of his life. Like that'll never they'll never be that for anyone, I don't think. Yeah. Or very slim, yeah. very rare that that very would happen. Few. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it maybe a good sign is that also we're unique. Mipso, we've we've always seen the whole thing as a collective and so we split stuff equally regardless of who wrote it. We share our publishing and maybe if you were just one person with a streaming song like that, it would have more of an impact, but it's true that even with some real successes on the streaming side, we still have to tour a lot more than we want to. And it's mainly for financial reasons. When the industry people tell us what our metrics are, it, it's wider than it used to be. Um, and it's harder to make money. So even now, like looking at the tour budgets for all these things coming up and comparing it to 2017, 2018, when we were a smaller band, uh, it's going to be harder to make money. And, and you eventually, no matter how much you love it, as you get older, I think you those questions start to to trickle in of is this worth it is this if to work this much it's it reminds me of that robbie folk song uh it's long i ride for the little i make and it's like it's true and uh we're definitely questioning the model of it and wondering if if it's sustainable long term uh if stuff keeps trending the way it is which is that the expenses for the artist are are up the the cost for the fan is up too, but that money is overwhelmingly going to people who aren't the artists. So it makes us wonder uh, what it's going to be like years from now. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad you guys are still doing it because I'm loving the songs. And, and Thank you. And, yeah, for sure. And part of that going back to Louise, one of the things I loved when I first heard that song is just it's not just like – it's, it's not a one, four, five song. You tell it's written by fans of songwriting. It's got cool changes, cool chords, movement. And I love, that's the stuff that always catches my ear. I love bluegrass and I listen to tons and tons of bluegrass music. However, sometimes though, I just need to listen to some singer songwriter sort of stuff and the, and like the folkier sort of vein or just because it creates different moods. There's, there's more changes in the songs and, you know, they can go in different directions. You know, it's funny, Louise, too, is one of our earlier songs. And at that time, our band is, an, is a happy accident. We we weren't, we didn't study music. We weren't trying to have careers in, as touring musician or recording musicians. We just loved music. We loved going to shows. 
um, we all had a wide variety of favorite bands and we were interested in trying to make our own music. And when we first started, it was just because someone asked us to play at a fundraiser on UNC campus at this event. And they were like, Oh, it's going to be a pig picking. So we were thinking we need a bluegrass band. Like you guys could be a bluegrass band. And we were like, okay, sure. <laughs> and so we spent a couple of weeks trying to get some songs together and we were trying to voice it through our lens of bluegrass, which you know, this is this is like 13 years ago. So this Mumford and Sons were trickling. The Avett brothers were a big presence in North Carolina, and, and Joseph especially comes from a family where traditional bluegrass was what something they shared together. And so we were like trying to find our own blend of of those things. But all of us, from a writing perspective, really came from a pop perspective. So we were even from the onset, and I think Louise is a great example of that. We were like, how can we fit the form? instrumentation and ensemble wise, but put the song maybe more in a place that's similar to the other bands we listen to that aren't acoustic. And our, I would say our journey since then has been continuing to hone on that craft of writing songs that we find engaging both like in the structure and rhythmically and in the writing, but also how does it, we can peel back the layers on starting as a string band um, and then finding what the new home is that it doesn't say goodbye to those initial flavors of being an acoustic group, but um, welcomes them into new territory. And I think this, this new album, like it's our least acoustic yet. And also it has my favorite mandolin parts that we've ever recorded. So it's, I, I'm really proud of, of that contrast uh, in our evolution. And it's going to be really fun to bring some of those new textures on the mandolin to stage with these songs. Yeah, what are a couple? What are a couple of the songs that you're most proud of with your mandolin? Um, well, Carolina Rolling By, that's uh, one of the singles from the album. Where the lead riff of that song um, is shared by mandolin and fiddle, and I, I love playing with Libby. I love we we love sharing. We kind of all like a lot of the old time sentiment of sharing a melody, and that song I think has a really cool version of it. And also that song, we tried to find a rhythmic role for the mandolin that is maybe a little less traditional than you think of mandolin in the bluegrass sense. And I think there's some really cool rhythm mandolin moments in that song. And also Radio Hell. kind of were inspired by some of the some of the like delay effects that I use on stage we were inspired by that to find textures on the mandolin that traditionally you'd probably give to an electric guitar and I think that uh, the riff there too is a really unique and contrasting tone to the mandolin that you'd expect now when you guys first we're playing together as the trio. Like one of the things I watched um, in the last week or so was like your, you guys did a Japan tour that looked like a riot, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a good, that was a good, that was actually our first like routed tour. So we had played shows, just one offs in North Carolina up to that point. And that was the first time we went out for more than a couple of days at a time. And yeah, it was one to remember <laughs> <laughs> now how does that how does something like that happen then for you guys to go to japan were you invited did you guys just decide we should go to japan and play um i so i studied uh human geography in at unc and international studies and i wrote my thesis on the geography of music and so my focus was how bluegrass spread to japan after world war ii 
And I spent three months in Japan the summer before that tour um, doing an oral history-based project on the Japanese bluegrass community. And so those became some really dear friends. Uh, and there's this unbelievable history of music in Japan, all, all sorts, traditional Japanese music and also Western music that infiltrated kind of when the society opened up. And those communities are still thriving today. And the bluegrass one is, is one that I have a soft spot for. There's amazing festivals. The third oldest bluegrass festival in the world is in Takarazuka, the in like the hills outside of Osaka. And there's all these great clubs um, across Japanese cities where small groups of people get together and share bluegrass music. So I kind of came back from that, that time wanting to share it with Joseph and Wood um, and we, yeah, we, I booked us a, a two week tour over there. We also played in, in China. We played in Shanghai and Beijing and we brought a friend of ours who at the time was just kind of learning how to make films and has since gone on to be a very lauded filmmaker. And so that film Mipso in Japan is both a really early look at, at us and our music, but also a kind of amazing study of John Casby, who's, who's become a really talented uh, filmmaker. Now you guys didn't go to school for music. What what suddenly was the impetus to be like? Wow, uh, you know, we should be a band and really pursue this. Well, I yeah, was, I kind of I said earlier it was a happy accident. Someone asked us to play the show, and then we were not good. That first show was <laughs> a train wreck. We have a recording of it, unfortunately. That sometimes we hear and we're like, oh my god! But people had a great time. We had a great time, and we just thought, well, we should do this again. So after that, we booked a club show and it sold out. And um, then we booked a two night run at the same club and those both sold out. And then we moved ourselves up to the cat's cradle, which is kind of the legendary venue in, in Chapel Hill and that sold out. And so there was just a demand for it. We were, we're a product of a community in in the triangle of North Carolina that has a long music history and also has a long history of supporting student bands, which is what we were at the time. And, we were given this amazing uh, opportunity and platform to, to kind of learn how to be a band on the fly. And that's, uh, that's what we did while we were wrapping up our degrees. And we started playing shows in other parts of North Carolina too. And in the triad where Joe and Wood and Libby are from, and also in the mountains where I'm from. And so every, every other weekend, kind of our, our junior and senior year, we were taken off and playing a show somewhere. And when we graduated, we thought, we should, we should just give this a go for a year. Like let's record an album. Let's, let's book some shows across North Carolina and the Southeast and, and then we'll get jobs or we'll go back to grad school. And we thought that was going to be it. And we recorded dark collar pop with our friend, Andrew Marlin from watch house producing. And he and Emily both played on it as did Bobby Britt from town mountain. Uh, a couple of the guys from Chatham County line Libby, that was kind of when Libby came into the fold too and would eventually become a full-time band member as well. And that album, the week it came out, charted on the Billboard Bluegrass charts, much to our surprise. And things just picked up speed. That was also the time that the Mipso in Japan film came out and it did really well on the indie film festival circuit. Uh, and we started touring and selling tickets and got a booking agent and a publicist and then a manager and... Um, eventually got a record deal and everything kind of just kept falling into place. And now we're 10 years in and um, we're, I think we look back and we're both grateful that we said yes initially. And then also grateful that the four of us have kind of kept saying yes. Every chapter feels like this little miracle. Um, and we're on the cusp of a new one right now with the book of fools release and, and this full nationwide tour approaching. You guys have great chemistry together too. It's it's really fun to see, and I think it really adds to the vibe of the show. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, Daniel. It's it's a weird relationship. We we um we've lived in a van together for a decade, basically. It's it's this odd combination of creative collaborator, um, best friend. It's almost it gets into like the family sibling territory, and also you own a business together, so you you kind of put on a lot of different hats in your relationship and one of the things that I think more than anything else explains why we're still together is that we've kind of collectively learned to be better listeners and to make space for each other. And it feels like such a privilege to watch 
anyone grow, you know, your friend, your partner, when you see people change in front of you, that's such a cool thing. And to understand how, as they change, their life changes too. And I, I think that that's something that the band has really tried to embody. It's kind of our ethos is like, how do we, how do we allow ourselves to change both collectively? Like that's each of our albums tells a different story. And then also as individuals, we, we've kind of grown up together and, and that, uh, I think that's what, that's what shows on stage. It's, it's not always easy, but we've, we've pushed through the hard times. And I think we're a lot, I think we're all like better friends and partners because of the relationship we have as, as band members. What was it like as a mandolin player to add a drummer? I mean, obviously you're songwriter based, but how did that affect how you performed all the times prior to that? And what changes did you have to kind of make for you? It was amazing for, for me. I had never, I basically have only played music with Mipso. That's uh, before that, it was just like me and my older brother playing at coffee shops and stuff at open mics. And so this is the first time that Mipso was the first time I was in a band and learning to play with other people. And so initially that meant that I, when we were sans drums, I was, it was me and Wood's job kind of to figure out what type of rhythm section we wanted to be. And there were parts of the traditional bluegrass expectation that we found interesting. And, and also there were parts that we thought were a little limiting or, or maybe too single dimensional. And so early on, that was the challenge. And, always for me, I was more interested in the mandolin as a texture than a lead instrument. And so I'm, I'm like endlessly fascinated by the rhythmic nature of mandolin playing. Um, and that's something that you can just explore forever. And it never has been for me, the most exciting to like be the flashy lead mandolin player. I've always liked to be the supporting mandolin player. And so adding drums gave me such an amazing opportunity to stretch and, and keep learning um, and, and have a lot more freedom to occupy new space. Let's talk a little bit about kind of like when you're, when you were sitting around home and, and developing your, your mandolin style. So what was some of the stuff that you were working on? You know, a, a lot of people on here that are more of like the, uh, you know, bluegrass, bluegrass traditional players, you know, worked on fiddle tunes and, and speed, but what were things you worked on? Yeah, it's a great question. And, also, it's, I think that there's a part of a long journey for me as a mandolin player was being a little insecure and in that I didn't fit into the traditional expectation of what a mandolin player was. I hear you there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's hard because on the one hand, I'm not, that's not what I ex excel at. And so like for me, shedding fiddle tunes on my own, I like music because I like music because I like songs. Um, and mainly from a writing perspective, like the lyrical side. And then I also like music because it's, you're communicating with somebody. Like I like playing with people. It's, it's why I just recently started to put out music under my own name and, and it took me 10 years cause it never was exciting to be solo. I, I like being in a band. I like being on a team. And so it was hard for me at first cause I think I, I wasn't naturally great at the lead style of mandolin. And so I'm, a middle kid who doesn't like having the spotlight. And so when we were at a jam and people were asking me to step out, it both highlighted the thing that I wasn't great at and also was uncomfortable doing. And yet I felt this expectation, like Billboard told us we were a bluegrass band. So I was like, Oh cool. I got to be a bluegrass mandolin player. And it took me a long time to be comfortable enough to recognize that I didn't need to do that. Uh, and that was largely, I think through me finding some of these other rhythmic roles of the mandolin and, and that is what I find so beautiful is um, both on the more percussive like chopping side and also when you get into the textural world of tremolos and chord kind of otter chord choices that to me is what's really exciting about playing mandolin in a band like Mipso. Um, so I yeah my early practice was playing along with other records and, and predominantly not bluegrass records and trying to figure out how the mandolin could be a cool part of those, of those songs rhythmically. When, when that billboard says, Oh, we're a bluegrass band. Did you go through a phase of like, Oh, I got to buy a few albums and try to start woodshedding on this before you figure it out. This isn't what I want to do. Definitely. And I mean, I, I love bluegrass music and now, and then, and so it wasn't that I didn't want to be a 
it wasn't like I didn't want to be a bluegrass mandolin player. It's that I just hadn't done that. Like I was, I was most excited when I was a kid about songwriters and, and honestly jam bands. And so, yeah, there was, there was a while where I was, I was struggling to figure out how to fit in and I had access to the music and a relationship with it, but I, I kind of just didn't have a desire. Like it wasn't, it wasn't fun for me to, to shed on tunes in the way that it is for most mandolin, mandolin and fiddle players. Um, but it was really fun for me to play mandolin with people who were doing that. <laughs> so that naturally filled out um, a different part of, uh, you know, the personality of, of the, of the mandolin role. And eventually it became really fun. And within Mipso, I would say that that was fun from the onset, but that became more fun when we added initially Jan Westerlin, who's just an amazing musician and drummer. Um, it was so fun to with him and, and Wood and Joe figure out how we could accentuate certain things together and then also play pretty different roles as well. And, and choosing those moments has, has been, I would say, like the most exciting part of being a mandolin player. And then now when we're recording, especially, we think of the mandolin both kind of first rhythmically and then second as um, an obscure lead instrument, like something that's maybe less focused on the solo and more on like emphasizing the riff and bringing in new textures. You know, I was lucky too that there were so, like I loved, I mean, obviously I was, you know, when, when I was getting into this type of music, that's when Nickel Creek was really front and center. And so they were such an interesting example because Chris, he can do it all, but often in that band, he's really holding a huge rhythmic component down. And so that was a great first look. And through them, I found Tim O'Brien and Tim really became the person I was most excited about though. He's such an amazing writer. And I, and also I think his rhythmic roles and chord choices on the mandolin are really interesting. And so through them, I kind of started to find my, my place. And then obviously growing up in the triangle as a musician um, and having Andrew Marlin there to watch his progression at that time as a mandolin player. And then when we started working together with him producing some albums to get to learn from him, he had a, a really big role too on, on how it is that I thought of the mandolin rhythmically. Yeah. He's killer. He's so good and gotten so much better even. I mean, he was great when I first heard mandolin orange or watch house, you know, yeah. um, but like, man, oh man, talk about, uh, just like, whoa, <laughs> he started putting out these solo albums and you're just like, wow. Yeah, he, I mean, Andrew, it's it's really inspiring to see anybody who's that passionate and focused um, and then to understand how that leads into finding your own voice. And I, that's one of the things I really admire about Andrew is I think he really, he can do it all, but he has a pretty signature, he's saying something every time he plays mandolin and I think it's pretty unique from other people. Um, and to come to our conversation earlier, Andrew is somebody who can just shed mandolin all day. That's like, that's one of his favorite things in life. Um, and I, I, that has never been me. So I, it was interesting to be in kind of in the immediate shadow of him and to watch how quickly he was growing and changing and learning um, and to struggle to do that. You know, it's like, I, I think I was insecure with it for a while. Uh, and yet also I have, I'm so fortunate that I was close enough to be able to learn a lot along the way. Yeah, that's so cool. And, we, and what a great group of um, North Carolina has a great group of like, I love Chatham County Line. I think they're great. Obviously, Watch House, uh, Town Mountain, um, the Avid Brothers. I, mean, I remember seeing the Avid Brothers at a gig in Cleveland, Ohio, and it was next door to the Beachland Ballroom, I think it was. Oh, and, yeah. and this is before they were like, I think I bought that album, Me Genet. I think that was their very first one. I bought it that night, but it was, we were at a gig at the Beach and Ballroom, and then we saw like the touring vehicle in the parking lot. We're like, oh, we have to go see this band or see who at least is playing. And we went into that bar and, you know, we were just going to go in and then leave. And it was literally like, uh, four beers, please. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. Well, they were. They were, um, I mean, growing up in North Carolina, that when they started, like the first couple times I saw them, this is when I was like in middle school, they were all free concerts where they were playing like 
a festival on the square type of thing as just like the, the local band. And those, those rec- some of those early records were really important to me um, in finding that type of writing and that type of like aggressive energy on an, in an acoustic group. It was, they were important contrast to the early bluegrass stuff I was listening to. And, and they've been kind of from a distant friends the whole way and have checked in with us at different moments. And we actually just played a festival with them a couple months ago. And Scott watched the whole, he, he was so, he's such a great, I don't know. It's such a great like elder statesman of our scene. He immediately sought us out when we arrived at the festival and let us know that he had been listening to the new record and loved it and was proud of how we changed. And they watched about half of our set from side stage and found each of us afterwards to talk about it. It was, it was really cool. A great moment of kind of, kind of, and we told him, you know, you're, you guys, we weren't trying to, to be the Gabert brothers, but the fact that they exist in North Carolina is a big part of why we thought we could be a band too, because they kind of, paved a path for being a different type of acoustic band. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really grateful for the music they've made and, and that their success has kind of opened some doors for the rest of us. When you work on writing tunes, do you ever write when you're on the mandolin? I do, but normally I start from guitar. Um, the guitar's probably the, or not probably the guitar is definitely the instrument I play most. Um, I find that it's just a great place to find to, for me. Songwriting is often about like pulling a thread um, and trying to understand how you can weave it into something else. And that is often easiest on guitar for me. Uh, and then I pretty quickly moved to mandolin to kind of like accompany once, once the song's a little more up and running. Do you still find yourself woodshedding it all a little bit on mandolin or playing around the house or is it more of guitar for you now at this point with like doing your solo stuff? It funnily enough, it had been more guitar for the last three years or so during COVID. Um, I was living in New York and we left kind of right before New York shut down. Me and my girlfriend left town thinking that we'd be gone for a weekend and we ended up being gone for several months. And so I didn't have a mandolin for a while and uh, did have a guitar. And after that, I just started playing guitar a lot more. So there's kind of a couple year period where honestly, I wasn't playing that much mandolin unless I was with Mipso. And in the last month or two out here in LA, I've been playing a lot more mandolin. We just got, you know, mandolin's not a fun thing to play when there's, when you're alone and there's another person in the house. <laughs> so I was living in an, in an apartment that didn't have a ton of um, noise isolation. And we just moved to a house that has a kind of like a back house for playing music. in. so I've been playing a lot more mandolin. So I'm aware now of the space limitations, maybe having played a, a role in my mandolin development. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to edit that out for my wife when she listens to this episode. <laughs> she yeah. thinks it's the coolest. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, play Golden Eagle Hornpipe one more time, could you please? Maybe just one small section yeah. you keep stumbling over. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, when I, I played um, saxophone in like middle school and high school band, and I, re- I reflect frequently on what a terrible, what an amazing gift my parents gave me that they didn't kill me while I was learning how to squawk <laughs> out all these songs on saxophone and. Um, I'm aware that it probably is worse if you give your kid at that age a mandolin or a fiddle to try and hear someone find find themselves and say it's it's the gift that keeps giving. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your gear. What kind of mandolin do you have? Um, my mandolin, I have I have two mandolins. One is a Gibbons A shaped mandolin that actually I got from Andrew Marlin. It was his mandolin for a long time. I love that one. But that uh, I've had that one for a while, and that's kind of, I would say that's kind of my secondary mandolin. Um, and actually, right now that that mandolin's living at my dad's house in North Carolina, so that when I'm when I'm there with him, I have something to play. My main mandolin has for a long time, and I think will forever be a mandolin that a friend made me. Um, and it's actually a, a Japanese mandolin builder, Yuichi Ueda, who's based in Osaka. He became a friend when I was doing my thesis project in Japan. I you know, finding he, he is highly specialized and makes Lloyd lore esque mandolins. And, um, I was fascinated by the story of how this guy who is previously building electric guitars and amps 
found a world where he was building really expensive mandolins. And it, he told me it was because he one time heard a Lloyd Lohr mandolin and couldn't believe the tone and volume of it. And he got obsessed with trying to do that as well and changed his whole life to be a mandolin builder. So he became a good friend during that process. And when Mipso started playing more um, more widely across the country and in other countries and on bigger stages, he reached out and asked if he could build me a mandolin. And I, it was one of the greatest honors. So I kind of helped tweak the design of what is his normal kind of master model and um, about eight months later, actually right before the first time we played Merle Fest, no, the second time we played Merle Fest, the mandolin arrived and I have never wanted another mandolin. Um, after getting to know it, it feels like an extension of me. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a beautiful instrument with a really unique tone and it really works within Mipso's ensemble. Man, you have two great stories about getting mandolins. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. Yeah. my, my mandolin lineage was that initial fender um, from the bet. And then eventually I upgraded to when I'd saved some, I got a job in high school cause I wanted a nicer mandolin and I got a Michael Kelly F style. And then that led me to a Collings, the MF five. I, I really loved that mandolin. That was a hard one to part with. Um, but Andrew, he had loaned me his givens when we were recording um, dark holler pop and I just fell in love with it. And he's someone who's had a lot of mandolins and, he was moving into a different mandolin world and asked me if I wanted it because I had had so much fun playing it and I'm happy I said yes. And then, uh, yeah, then the, the Wade came into my life and yeah, it's, it's, I'm really fortunate. How about, uh, when you, when you, uh, plug it in, what kind of pickup do you use? Um, I've got the K and K twin transducer in there that, that has been perfect for that mandolin from day one. Uh, and then I, play through a grace felix di that um that's actually what everyone in mipso uses those they're so great the combo of those two i think they're a really perfect pair um and then for this mipso tour i'm building out a little pedal world with some effects so that's kind of still in motion that's that's a lot of new territory for me but i'm lucky that my bandmate and friend joseph has done a lot of groundwork so he's he's kind of helping me find some new new textures there um and I used the the straight up strings from the Simonoff family. Those are those have been my my strings for a long time. I like the heavies, uh, and I oscillate between a Wigan and blue chip for for picks, kind of depending on what song we're playing. What size pick do you use? Uh, I use the triangle ones, and I flex between one point two and one point four. Uh, it used to be that I played core, pretty heavy stuff and maybe four years ago I moved to like a 1.4 and um, that's kind of been my territory ever since. What are some of the pedals that you think might make the uh, board? I love the uh, the effects world talk. The main one I've been using for the past year is the Echoplex made by Catalina Bread. Yeah. Um, that's I, I, the music that I make outside of Mipso and a lot of the music I listen to is kind of more in like the indie world. And um, that type of delay was a sound that I really liked. And I really liked that version of it. So for a long time, that's been my only pedal. And I'm kind of working right now with Joseph to add a couple more textures to it because on this, it'll be really interesting on this Mipso tour coming up. Um, I would say in the last couple of years, it's been that on stage I play about as much guitar as mandolin. And now it's going to be um, a pretty even split between guitar and mandolin, but I'm also going to play some keys. And there'll be a number of songs where I'm playing keys and mandolin on the same song. So I'm, we're kind of like thinking about those things as being connected. Uh, and so from a tone perspective, finding looking for some pedals that could complement the sounds that I'll be getting out of the keys world. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, it's it's going to be fun. It's it's you know, Mipso's played like fourteen hundred concerts together. We've been a heavy touring band for a long time, and there are eras where it feels like stuff doesn't change that much. You get kind of set in emotion, whether that's the gear or the song that you're pulling from night to night, uh, and then there are other eras where it feels like every night's totally different. And it's fun to be on the cusp of this new tour because for all of us. 
there's going to be more instruments on stage. We're each going to play more instruments than we have in the past, a lot of new tones, um, and most importantly, a lot of new songs. So it's, it's going to be a really fun first couple of weeks on the road, figuring out where we want to land. And I think that, uh, that period of, it's, it's not quite trial and error, but that period of being unsure um, is a really good feeling when you're a touring musician who has maybe had too much certainty <laughs> in other moments. <laughs> Man, that's great. Well, I'm excited for your tour. Are you guys, uh, I didn't see any like Charleston, South Carolina dates. Do you know if you're going to make it down this way by chance? No, we, we actually, we don't have a Charleston date um, on this fall Southeast tour. I think we'll be there in the spring of next year. Awesome. Yeah. We love Charleston. We, we've played a lot of great shows there. Um, and there's so many great concert venues. And then I, I really love eating and Charleston and Savannah. Both are kind of two of my favorite Southern cities for, for getting a good, a good meal before or after the show. Man, I'll keep my eye out for sure. You guys, I loved your uh, set at Green Mountain. It was, it was a wonderful, but was, I'll definitely come again. Thanks. Yeah. I, that was a really fun afternoon for us and definitely a preview of, of what's come with this album release tour. So I, I'm happy, happy you dug it, and also just appreciate you giving us the intro and watching the whole set, and it's it's been fun to chat here, too. Oh, yeah, same here. Well, i got two more questions for you, and um, the first yeah. one is, and this will be interesting, too, because of of the different background that, that you have than other players, but I, I'd like to ask, if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something to become a better player, what would you work on? I would say right now I would really focus on – my right i would it would be dialing up a certain catalog of fiddle tunes um to really focus on my right hand technique i've I've noticed recently that i did i probably am lacking a little bit of uh structure on my right hand so that would be what i'd focus on right now nice do you have a, like a fiddle tune that you like to warm up with or somebody hands you a mandolin and you're like oh this is my go-to um, I like that John Reichman tune, Salt Spring. Awesome song. Yeah, that that would be the probably my current go, my current and long time go to. Great one. That's uh, as, if you ask John Reichman, that's his wagon wheel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've only gotten to hang with John a time or two, but actually, one of the the last time we were at IBMA, which is it's a while ago now, he played right before we had a showcase, and he let me play his the mandolin that he wrote that on and that mandolin sounds so amazing. It was, we were standing in a stairwell at, um, I think it was the poor house in Raleigh leading up from like the stage to the green room. And that mandolin really has a distinct tone because of how much he's played into it. He's, he's special. Yeah. He's, he's one of my favorites too. I mean, talking about people that are playing now, Tim O'Brien has always been a kind of a luminary for me. And I, I love listening to Andrew play too. I just have such an intimate relationship with his music. Um, and then John is, is definitely someone who's, whose music I love. And when I know that he's playing in the band, it's, it's going to be a band I want to see. And then the final question is, do you have a favorite beer? Oh yeah. Um, so I'm from Morganton, North Carolina, and we're really lucky that in Morganton, there's one of my favorite breweries in the country, Fanta Flora. And those folks have become good friends over the years. They've even made a couple beers for Mipso on previous album releases. They did um, two different beers that were like themed after either the album or a song. And uh, they're like, a, it's a farmhouse brewery. So they do a lot of, it's almost like farm to table beers. And they do a lot of beers. That they forage the ingredients from the Pisgah National Forest right nearby their brewery. And they have a, um, a beer called the Nebo Pills. And, um, man, it, it's one of my favorite, I love Pilsners and that's one of my favorite ones that I've ever had. And every time I'm home, I, I get a four pack of them. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Jacob, this has been a blast talking with you. It was really great to meet you and chat with you for a few minutes at Green Mountain, but this has been, this has been a really awesome way to spend an afternoon. Thank you for taking the time and doing this. Hey, right back at you. I, I appreciate you reaching out and um, I've been a fan of, of the podcast and so many of the people that you've had conversations with are either friends. Well, normally they're both people who are friends and people who I admire. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Thanks uh, for having me. Anytime, buddy. Thank you.
All right, go and follow Mipso and Jacob on the social medias and the internet. If they're coming to a town, it will be 100% worth it for you to go see their show. It's really, really fantastic. All right, and don't forget about the Blue Highway Fest. That's coming up here in just about a month, and uh, they're giving away some more tickets. So shoot me an email with tickets in the subject matter uh, at danielpatrickmusic at yahoo.com or go to the contact page. There will also be a link here where you can enter. Or go to social media, Instagram or Facebook, Mandolins and Beer, and put tickets under the post that shows the lineup. It's an incredible lineup. So there you go. All right. Thanks for listening. You guys have a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.